Hi, everyone. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chris Rogers, and I'm a policy analyst at AASA. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as edu policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at crogers at aasa.org or on Twitter at crogers16. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is with Crystal Fitzsimmons, Director of School and Out-of-School Time Programs at the Food Research and Action Committee, or FRAC. In her current role at FRAC, Crystal directs the organization's work on the child nutrition programs that serve school-aged children. She is responsible for researching, analyzing, and advocating for legislative and regulatory improvements that increase low-income children's access to nutritional programs. Crystal also works on FRAC's technical assistance side, where she develops strategical and direct field efforts to achieve program improvements. As a result of her work and authorship, Crystal frequently speaks at national after-school conferences and meetings. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Crystal. She is a good colleague and advocate for the federal school lunch, breakfast, and summer food service programs. I'm appreciating the opportunity to highlight the work of FRAC, talk about their advocacy efforts, and see what's on the horizon as it relates to the federal and state policy on the school lunch and breakfast programs. Thanks for listening. So Crystal, uh, thank you for joining us today. I know FRAC does a lot of work and has a lot going on right now in the regulatory and legislative arenas. So I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. For our listeners, give us your elevator speech on who FRAC is, what their priorities are for the federal nutrition programs, and how it works to improve child and school-based nutrition. Of course, and thanks for having me on the podcast. (laughs) I just want to start by saying that I really value our partnership with ASA and all the leadership that you guys provide within the school nutrition programs. And of course, I really enjoy working with you, Chris, as well. Um, But digging into FRAC, we are the leading national anti-hunger organization focused on reducing hunger and improving nutrition through the federal nutrition programs, which includes the school breakfast program and school lunch programs. We strive to make sure that everyone in the United States has access to a healthy diet with dignity. And in order to achieve this, we focus on improving policy around the federal nutrition programs. We conduct research, we provide technical assistance, and we work in partnership with groups like AASA and other partners to increase access to the nutrition programs. Uh, Well, that was great. Thank you for that high level overview of the organization. So moving on, uh, typically when we think about education policy, I feel as though people don't make a direct connection toward between student outcomes and child nutrition. There's often this type of disconnect, right? So from an outsider's perspective, how does the work you do in programs like WIC and SNAP and the summer food service programs relate to the work being done in schools? And how does this intersect with your work on the school meal, meal programs in general? Of course. So I think all educators know that hungry children really cannot learn. Kids who are hungry cannot focus or concentrate. They may act out in class. And the school nutrition programs obviously are critical education support that helps to ensure that kids are not sitting in classrooms hungry. But of course, kids are not in school 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so the other nutrition programs that are available are really important to make sure that kids have the nutrition that they need to grow up healthy and to be able to achieve academically. So SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and was previously called food stamps, 
that really is designed to provide important nutrition resources to families to help keep hunger at bay at home so that kids are not going home to empty cupboards and have access to nutritious food over the weekends as well. WIC is really designed to help ensure that kids get a healthy start by providing a nutrition prescription really for pregnant and postpartum women, infants and young children to make sure that kids are getting the nutrition that they need. And then the summer and after school nutrition programs even more directly I think are related to the school nutrition programs and what schools are trying to do. Summer and after school nutrition programs are often tied to great summer and after school programs that support learning, education, enrichment, and really help improve kids' academic achievement and strengthen their ties to school. So those two programs which provide nutritious meals after school, on weekends, during school holidays, and during the summer are important educational supports to make sure that students are not hungry when they're not in the classroom. Right. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, who would think that a hungry could a hungry student wouldn't be able to learn? Um, but uh, moving on to our next question. So, like ASA, FRAC advocates to the legislative, executive, and judicial branches on matters that directly impact the school lunch and breakfast program. While FRAC focuses on a broader set of priorities, as you just mentioned, from us at here at AASA, there has been a lot of overlap between our work on the executive side this year, particularly with regards to SNAP and uh, the categorical eligibility notice of proposed rulemaking. So for our viewers, can you give us an overview of what these proposed rules are, how it will affect schools, and the administration's rationale behind uh, the change? Sure. So I will start by saying that categorical eligibility is a little bit complicated, and so please bear with me as I try to explain it in the most simplest terms. Oh, man, we're getting uh, wonky. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically, you know, in order to receive SNAP benefits or what people commonly think of as food stamps, a family has to have a gross income of 130% of the poverty line. And then the state allows families to deduct costs like housing costs, childcare costs, utility costs, um, and their income actually has to get to 100% or below the poverty line in order for a family to receive SNAP benefits. And just to kind of put that into context for you, um, in order for a family to receive SNAP benefits, a family of three, their household income would have to be less than $21,330,000. So that's their net income. Wow. So, but in categorical eligibility allows states, and it is a state option, so not every state does it, but most states do some variation of it. It allows them to screen families for SNAP benefits if their gross income is slightly above 130%. So some states allow families to be screened for SNAP benefits at 185% or as high as 200% of the poverty line. But in order for the family to actually receive the SNAP benefits, and be linked to school meals then, their net income actually has to be 100% of the poverty line or below. And some states will waive kind of asset requirements so that a family can have a car, uh, which I think everyone would agree is an important thing for a family to have in order to maintain working. So it really is a way to make sure that families have access to the nutrition they need and take into account the cost. But I think it's really important because uh, I think there's a lot of misinformation around to know, you know, that it is 100% of the net income has to be 
the poverty they have to hit the poverty line uh, 100 percent of the poverty line with their net income in order to receive snap benefits so we're talking about families who are struggling who need nutrition support and it allows you know some states with higher costs of living to make sure that kids have access to meals and it really does kind of target working families who are struggling, families with seniors, families with disabilities, um, and it's an important resource. So CATL has a long history as well. It's been around for more than 20 years. Right. Um, and it is a state option. Right, no, it definitely seems like it's designed to help those families on the cusp uh, of poverty and those that are going through uh, financial hard times find stability and food security. So thank you for that brilliant explanation on a, a complicated rule uh really appreciate that but uh along oh, no those problem along those same lines uh we know that the notice proposed rulemaking will reduce districts ability to directly certify students and consequently the number of students uh, that qualify for free and reduced price lunch considering that the metric is also being used to determine title one allocations so assistance for the bottom five percent of schools in a state uh, could the rule have a broader effect on schools' Title I funding, or do you have any thoughts about that? Chris, you're absolutely right. There is an important link between kids who are certified for free and reduced price school meals and a whole range of education funding streams, including Title I. And so is, I think it's important to take a step back because you're right, the rule does not just impact SNAP access and participation in the SNAP program, it actually is estimated to impact um, more than 500,000 children who would be impacted by this rule and around school meals. Um, so some children would no longer be eligible for free school meals, some of these children would shift to reduced price meals, and others would no longer be eligible for free or reduced price meals. And so it's important to understand the impact that this will have on schools. And so any kind of education funding stream that actually takes into account free and reduced price eligibility, there can be an impact there. I think it's also important for people to be aware of the fact that community eligibility, which allows high poverty schools to offer free meals to all students, could be impacted as well because it is really based on kind of the direct certification kids coming into free school meals without an application, which is what happens for kids who participate, who live in households that participate in SNAP. And then the other piece that I wanted to flag as well is that we have so many school districts, I think about 75% of school districts report uh, that they are struggling with school lunch debt. And anything that causes families who are struggling to move out of access to free school meals and to reduce priced or paid, we would expect that to aggravate the school lunch debt issue. So we think that the categorical eligibility rule that's being proposed, it's gonna increase hunger at home and at school, and it's also gonna create more hardships for schools around community eligibility and school lunch debt. Well, that was not <laughs> how I wanted to start my day with that news, but uh, it's definitely good to know that this rule has broader implications for K-12 funding and then also just food security for our students in general. We're, we try to be bipartisan here, and or we are bipartisan here. We, we want to see if there's any validity to uh, the NOSA proposed rulemaking. Uh, so that's kind of where the background for this next question comes from. Uh, proponents of the 
Those proposed rulemaking have said that'll help boost SNAP's program integrity by ensuring that the neediest families will receive federal benefits and benefits that they are deserved. And cited that the change is necessary because TANF has a significantly higher income threshold uh, than SNAP, as you mentioned earlier. So is broad-based categorical eligibility truly being used to abuse SNAP eligibility, or is there more to the story? Like, is there is there something we're missing here? So I think there is something that's being missed here, because CAD-L allows states to really target these benefits to families who need them. And as I said earlier, a family really does have to have a net income of 100% or below the poverty line, which is pretty low. And most families who are at that level are going to need additional nutrition supports to keep hunger at bay. It's also important to note that Changes to the to Cat L were actually proposed in the Farm Bill that was passed by Congress last year, and the final bill did not include changes to Cat L. And so, this is an attempt by the administration to make those changes that were not included in the bill that was passed by Congress. Um, and we think that Cat L is an important tool for making sure that families have the nutrition they need, but it also supports work uh, because it's a lot of working families who are qualifying for CATL, uh, or qualifying for SNAPs under the CATL option. Right, right. Okay, so let's take a step back from all the wonky talk with broad-based categorical eligibility and kind of move towards immigration, which is hasn't been touched yet in this conversation. So there have been reports that there will be a mass cooling effect on the number of immigrant families registering for SNAP, TANF, and WIC because of fears of being denied permanent residencies or worse, deportation. Has FRAC anticipated how these notice proposed rulemaking will exacerbate food insecurity in immigrant households or thought of strategies to combat these problems if the, the rule goes through? Right. So the rule was finalized and introduced, but we expect that there will be some legal challenges to that rule. Right. So we're going to have to stay tuned on that piece. Um, we are tracking it very closely. And I do want to say that the school nutrition programs, and thanks to ASA, which actually weighed in uh, before the rule was even published, uh, opposing including the child nutrition programs in that role, and I think it had a huge impact in making sure that it wasn't included. Um, but the child nutrition programs, including WIC, school meals, summer food, and after-school meals, they were not included in that public charge rule. So we right. need to make sure that people are aware of that. Um, but we are very concerned about the chilling effect that a lot of the immigration policies that are coming out of the current administration is having. And I would say, you know, that schools are really in such an playing such an important role in supporting their students. And, you know, now is the time to make sure that families know that, Anybody who is eligible, anybody who attends a school who participates in the school lunch and school breakfast program can apply to receive free and reduced price meals, and the public charge rule does not change that. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Thank you for that. And also, thank you for that uh, shout out <laughs> for AASA's help in uh, the public charge uh, front. So, uh, transitioning to the work that's been done on Capitol Hill with regards to this year's child nutrition reauthorization, as our viewers may already know, this is the process Congress goes through every five years to reauthorize the Russell Brand Child Nutrition Act. For background, the 2010 reauthorization led to the passage of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, 
which expand the availability of nutritious meals and snacks to more kids. Uh, Crystal, what's in store for this year's reauthorization, and do you expect there to be an impact from the administration's notice of proposed rulemaking on the conversations taking place in the Senate and the House, or is it kind of just in its own separate arena? Well, in some ways it is in its own separate arena, but um, the the committees that have jurisdiction over uh, child nutrition reauthorization, the Senate Agriculture Committee, they were the ones who passed the farm bill that did not include the changes to broad-based CATL that is being proposed in the proposed rule. So I think, you know, that will definitely be a distraction, and I know that the House Education and Labor Committee, although they don't have jurisdiction over SNAP, they actually are very concerned about the impact that the proposed rule could have on the child nutrition programs. So I think, you know, it definitely is a distraction and people are very concerned. And I think people are somewhat concerned as well that this is a proposed rule that is inconsistent with the farm bill that was passed not even a year ago. Uh, so it's definitely going to be a distraction for everybody. Um, but that being said, there is a lot of interest to try and get a child nutrition reauthorization bill done over the next year. Um, Senator Roberts, who chairs the Senate Agriculture Committee, is retiring next year in 2020, and he has stated publicly that he really, really wants to get a uh, child nutrition reauthorization done before he retires. So there's going to be a lot of energy and a lot of focus on that. The Senate will likely move first, and I would expect them to be marking up a bill in the committee in September or October. So we would expect them to be working on that this fall. And then the House will probably go next. They have some other things on their plate that they're going to try and deal with beforehand, like the Older Americans Act. Um, But there is interest in trying to get this done this Congress. Well, thank you for that, that insider knowledge <laughs> that we just received. Let's really get into the weeds for our policy wonks tuning in. Uh, FRAC has some ambitious ideas for improving access to school meals for low-income students, including a statewide community eligibility pilot program and raising the provision threshold. Can you give us some background information on FRAC's work with CEP and how the program helps schools provide free meals to students? Absolutely. Community eligibility is one of my favorite things to talk about. So community eligibility allows high poverty schools to offer free breakfast and lunch to all students, and it eliminates the need to collect school meal applications. So it reduces the administrative burden of operating the school nutrition programs dramatically, um, and it increases participation in school breakfast and school lunch. And so educators know that kids are not sitting in classrooms hungry, that kids have access to healthy meals and it really does kind of level the playing field you know support a healthier more nurturing cafeteria environment and it's just a win-win for everyone the way community eligibility works and the way it is able to get rid of collecting the school meal applications is that it actually bases both eligibility and the amount of federal funding that a school receives on the percentage of kids who are certified for free school meals without an application. And so that includes kids who live in 
households that participate in SNAP, which is part of the reason why the, the broad-based CAT-L proposed rule would have an impact on community eligibility. And then it also includes kids who live in households that participate in TANF or the Food Distribution Program for Indian Reservations, who are homeless, who are migrant, who are in foster care or Head Start or Early Start. And so, and in some cases, Medicaid, they do direct certification for Medicaid as well. So there's a group of kids who are certified for free school meals without a school meal application. And then they take that percentage. And if it is at least 40% for the school, the group of schools, or even the entire district, they take that percentage and they multiply it by 1.6 to figure out how many meals are reimbursed at the free rate and how many meals are reimbursed at the paid rate. So if their identified student percentage, the kids who are certified without an application, is 50%, let's say it's 50%, then you multiply it by 1.6 and you would get 80% of your meals reimbursed at the free rate and 20% of your meals reimbursed at the paid rate. And obviously if you have a higher percentage, it's higher, and if you have a lower percentage, it's lower. But that's how it works. And Because of the administrative savings and increases in participation, a lot of schools are adopting it. So right now we have about 28,500 schools across the country that have implemented community eligibility. So they're offering free breakfast and lunch to all their students. And it's a we just hear wonderful positive things about it. So we are looking in child nutrition reauthorization really to build on that success and to see if there are ways to increase the number of schools that are able to adopt community eligibility. And you mentioned a couple of the ideas that we have. You know, the 1.6 multiplier, which they use to determine the reimbursement, we would love to see that increased even to 1.8%, and it would make it more financially viable for some of those schools that have like two-thirds of their students low income to really come into community eligibility. And another piece that we're looking at is whether or not there might be a way to do a statewide community eligibility demonstration pilot. I think community eligibility has really shined a light on how valuable it is to provide free school meals to all students. And this could create an opportunity for us to to really test out what that could look like. And then also on the other end, the unpaid school meal debt, which has come up for a lot of schools across the country, community eligibility really does eliminate that. So you're able to provide free meals to all students and you don't have to collect school meal fees, which a lot of school districts see as a huge positive as well. Oh yeah, I mean, Taking the burden off of schools is something we always are appreciative here at AASA. Uh, so thank you for that and thank you for sharing those ideas, particularly uh, explaining the connection between direct certification and free and reduced price lunch eligibility. That was wonderfully done. Related to CEP, many 2020 presidential contenders have been arguing for the necessity of universal free school meals. You kind of already touched on this, but how does CEP play into this policy idea And what does FRAC's research say about the effectiveness of these types of uh, proposals? 
Right. Well, it's been really exciting to see uh, some of the presidential contenders talking about the school nutrition programs because I have not really seen that a lot uh, <laughs> during my 20 years at FRAC. So it is wonderful. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to, to really think about how to build out universal free school meals to all students. And CEP, I do think, provides an important building block for us to think about how that could happen. It would be great if the next president came in and, you know, immediately moved to make universal school meals available for free to all students. It's probably going to take a little bit of time. And so CEP really does provide a nice building block for us to build off of and expand. Having that in the mix as part during the presidential debate, I think is a positive, and I think it's really important for people to to be elevating, you know, the importance of making sure that the kids in the United States are not hungry. Right, especially when it's linked with so many other outcomes, right? So, exactly. <laughs> uh, moving to the next question. So one of our favorite things to ask guests on the show is, what's your favorite edu geek memory? So... Have you ever been more of a fan than an employee in a given meeting, event, or a project? Or have, have you ever had an experience that really like spoke to the reason why you got into advocacy and uh, working on these issues? Uh, yeah, so I well, so there's a couple <laughs> thoughts that I had uh, about this. Um, I am tangentially involved in education, right? I'm definitely not an education policy oh. expert, but I do get to go to a lot of education meetings. And I think one of my favorite education meetings where a superintendent, it was during the big debates around how much testing should happen with kids. <laughs> And a superintendent was on the panel and he said, you know, where I come from, we have a saying, you don't, you don't fatten up the pig by measuring it. And I was like, huh. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly the same thing about testing. You know, kids aren't going to, you don't teach kids by testing them all the time. And I thought that was a really, a really colorful analogy that has actually stuck with me for a long time. But I mean, I just think, you know, the work that I do and my interest in working in child nutrition programs is because have, making sure that kids have access to nutritious meals at school is really key to making sure that kids grow up healthy, but also for us to break the cycle of poverty to make sure that kids are sitting in classrooms, able to focus, able to learn, and able to achieve. And so it doesn't solve all the problems. Like, we definitely have a lot of problems um, that kids who are growing up in poverty have to face every single day. But it does at least allow kids to start the school day on a level playing field, and that's why I think they're so important. Well, thank you for that wonderful story. We love uh, superintendent shout-outs, especially colorful analogies like that. <laughs> um, so really appreciate that. Final and last question, and then we'll wrap things up. So given your experience and that we're both in D.C. and work on the Hill and in the regulatory arena, I couldn't not ask you the following questions, right? So what are the odds that you think CNR, Child Nutrition Reauthorization, will get done this year? And then how big of a role do you think food insecurity will play in the 2020 elections? So I will pull out my crystal ball on the CNR <laughs> question, and I would say I would say maybe 50-50. I mean, I do think that there is a lot of political momentum to try and get a child nutrition reauthorization bill done. 
And so I think that does create an opportunity to get a good, strong bill passed. I would say that this is an election year, which relates to your next question. And once we get past a certain point in Washington, D.C., uh, nobody's really paying attention to passing legislation. They are really focused on the elections that are coming up. So it makes it harder. The longer it delays, I think the harder it can be to get a bill passed. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of interest in getting it done. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I think, I don't know, 50-50, maybe a little bit more likely than not. <laughs> and then as far as uh, food insecurity playing a role in the 2010 election, 20, sorry, 2020 election, um, I would say that it's already coming up. And school meals and the need for universal school meals have come up. Interests in um, supporting education have come up. Hunger and inequality and poverty have all been coming up quite a bit in in the conversation. So I expect that to continue. And I think that having, you know, a public conversation about hunger and food insecurity and making sure that everyone in the United States has enough food to eat so that they can be healthy and productive is an important conversation to be part of the political debate. I feel like I just got a palm reading. So thank you for that. That was, that was, okay. that was excellent on, on, on spot, especially with your analysis that this is really, we have a short window here really to pass uh, child nutrition reauthorization and respond to all of the notices of proposed rulemaking on the on the regulatory front. Uh, well, I guess the only thing I would add, though, is even if people think that child nutrition reauthorization is not going to happen this year, um, so if people think that it's less likely to, wherever we land with child nutrition reauthorization, that's where Congress picks back up in the next cycle. So any advocacy that anybody does to weigh in on the importance of school nutrition programs, on the importance of expanding community eligibility, anything like that, like that actually does have a payoff, even if the bill doesn't get passed, because it will help impact the bill that people are working on and the bill that people start with. So I would encourage everybody to still weigh in on child nutrition reauthorization, even if it's not totally clear that it's going to get done this year. Well, thank you for that call to action and, and that wonderful uh, palm reading, for real. Thank you again for joining us on this week's episode of Pep Talk. You can keep up with the latest and greatest on child nutrition reauthorization or the notice of proposed rulemaking around SNAP and broad-based categorical eligibility by following Crystal on Twitter at Frat tweets uh f-r-a-c-t-w-e-e-t-s and i think that wraps it up for today's conversation thank you crystal for joining us oh thanks for having me chris